Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with President Putin's long and angry speech today, in which he effectively declared war on Ukraine by recognizing its two contested eastern provinces, and in a long diatribe about his version of history, he included the Baltic states that are NATO members as former Soviet states, subject to his new interpretation of independence. Joining us is Alexander Cooley, Director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute for the Study of Russia, Eurasia and Eastern Europe, and the Claire Toe Professor of Political Science at Barnard College of Columbia University. His books include Great Games, Local Rules, The New Great Power Contest in Central Asia, Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia, and most recently, Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. We will discuss the likely political consequences of a brutal war on Ukraine in Washington, where Republicans are breaking the tradition of rallying around the flag where foreign policy is concerned, with the prospect that the GOP might adopt Tucker Carlson's pro-Putin propaganda and undermine Biden by arguing that America should not be interfering in the former Soviet states. Then we'll look into the leak of 18,000 secret bank accounts held by Credit Suisse belonging to Middle East potentates and dictators containing $100 billion of often looted money, much of which originated as foreign aid paid for by the American taxpayer. Joining us is Bartlett Naylor, the financial policy advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division and the principal of Capital Strategies Consulting, Inc., which works with progressive organizations attempting to reform public policies where corporations play a key role. Formerly, he served as Chief of Investigations for the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, where he led probes of the savings and loan crisis, corporate takeovers, and insider trading. Then finally, we'll examine ways in which the Democrats can avoid an electoral wipeout in the midterms, with many Democratic strategists arguing that the White House must change its messaging, proclaiming things are better when many voters feel things aren't better. Joining us is Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. We will discuss his article at the New Democrat Network, Mr. Biden, Your Good Economy Won't Sell Itself. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Alexander Cooley, a director of Columbia's University's Harriman Institute for the Study of Russia, Eurasia and Eastern Europe, and the Claire Toe Professor of Political Science at Barnard College of Columbia University. His books include Great Games, Local Rules, The New Great Power Contest in Central Asia, Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia, and most recently, Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. In addition to his academic work, Professor Cooley serves on a range of international advisory boards and working groups engaged in the region, and he's testified for congressional committees on Eurasian issues. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Cooley. It's good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And what did you make of President Putin's uh, fiery speech today, uh, where he uh, went over his version of history and, most importantly, uh, declared that he wants to recognize Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states or independent regions, uh, which is, in effect, a declaration of war on Ukraine. And he also extended his notion of independence to the Baltic states. In other words, any state that used to be a part of the Soviet Union is fair game. Is that How, how did you t- interpret it? Yeah, I agree with all of those comments. And I'll say this will go down as a historic speech. This is nothing less than the deline- delineation of the end of the post-Cold War order and the start of Cold War 2.0. What I found fascinating about this speech was how little there was on NATO enlargement. Prior to this, the debate surrounding crisis in Ukraine and Russian aggression had been over the limits of NATO expansion, what was and wasn't promised to the Soviets and then the Russians. Um, And, you know, Russia's um, security situation and certain legitimate security concerns. This speech had very little of that. It was a rant about um, the delegitimacy of the Ukrainian state presenting it as a Soviet construct, uh, talking about um, an illegitimate use of Western aid to keep Ukrainian oligarchs afloat, um, sort of menacingly talking about this process of decommunization that has been going on in recent years in Ukraine and saying, you want decommunization, you're going to get it. Unfortunately, I think the recognition of these Eastern territories is the first salvo. Uh, I think what Putin is doing, and I hope I'm wrong, is setting the scene for the very dismemberment of Ukraine as a sovereign state. Well, this declaration at least is a trigger, is it not, for Russian troops, not that they're probably already in there, but to at least go up to the line of control, which is about half of the two states, Donetsk and Luhansk, that Putin has now basically said he plans to annex. Yeah, that's right. Well... I think the model here is what we saw in 2008 after the Georgia War, when Russia recognized the independence of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They tried to secure additional external recognitions. For the most part, they failed, apart from Nicaragua, uh, recently Syria, uh, a couple of Pacific islands. And they signed these, quote unquote, bilateral treaty of understandings and cooperation that allow for the full circulation of Russian forces on their territory. So that's been done already. And what I think remains to be seen is just how far out now Russian troops will go. Was it in fact just to the contact line, the ceasefire will be to the full administrative borders. Either way, though, I do fear that um, this is, you know, just the beginning um, of a process. Many said that, you know, 
uh, perhaps Putin would be satisfied that this is sort of, um, you know, the, the one thing he wants to extract to save face. Uh, it seems very much that this is a dark, angry, foreboding speech um, that's opening things as opposed to closing them off. So the first thing that would happen, would it not be, Alexander Cooley, that the so-called People's Republic of Luhansk and Donetsk, their separatist leaders would request military help from Russia? Is that what's about to happen? Yeah, um, I think the treaties themselves, I haven't looked at the articles closely, but if they're modeled on these other ones, um, we'll provide for that. Uh, and I think... You know, beyond that, you've seen the pretext set into motion, just like Secretary of State Blinken warned they would be at the U.N. of creating these pretexts for intervention, um, trying to draw the fire of Ukrainian forces, um, you know, using, you know, very deliberate language that what is being come, uh, inflicted upon Russian speakers in the area is a genocide, um, trying to come up with these pretexts for an actual uh, military occupation and an impossible military campaign into undisputed Ukraine itself. So it's reasonable to assume, is it not, Alexander Cooley, that this is long in coming, right? This is not Putin having a hissy fit. This is long in coming. I think, you know, the, you know, the we can we can think of it as 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 an arc both of the post-Cold War, but also of what happened in 2014. Prior to 2014, Ukraine was a relatively divided country. Um, it tilted east and west. It had pockets and communities supportive of each orientation. The annexation of Crimea and the then support for the separatists alters both the ethnic balance and composition in remaining Ukraine, but it also forges the contemporary Ukrainian state. Ukrainians have relatives, they have friends who have fought, died, lost limbs in that initial conflict of 2014. It creates a sense of modern Ukrainian identity, and it accelerates this divorce with Russia. Um, as a result now, looks at Ukraine, and he uh, sees it as gone. Uh, it is inevitably tilting towards the West, um, wanting association with the European Union and NATO. Support for NATO membership is an all-time high. And in some ways, he thinks he doesn't have a lot to lose in the sense that given that there is no support now or very little support um, for continuing forms of association with Russia, uh, that uh, he may as well try and extract um, a much bigger concession, which is nothing short than uh, the redoing of the post-Cold War order on terms more favorable to Russia. Russia was excluded uh, from these 1991-1992 decisions. Um, it was a victor's peace, according to Putin, and he wants to uh, assert Russian national interests as a great uh, world power and great European player. So this is much more about security. It's much more about the separatists. This is about what Europe itself and the rules of uh, regional security and regional law should look like. And again, I'm speaking with Alexander Cooley, the director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute for the Study of Russia, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe, 
and the Claire Toe Professor of Political Science at Barnard College of Columbia University. His books include Great Games, Local Rules, The New Great Power Contest in Central Asia, Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia, and most recently, Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. In addition to his academic work, Professor Cooley serves on a range of international advisory boards and working groups engaged with the region, and he's testified for congressional committees on Eurasian issues. So... How long? I mean, obviously, this will be a trigger for a war which would start in Luhansk and Donetsk, but it seems almost impossible that it wouldn't also involve an attack from the north and from the naval deployments in the south. Was that what you would expect? In other words, this is the trigger for a war, but it won't just be a war for these two eastern provinces. Yeah, unfortunately, it's looking more like that now that the maximalist scenario is the one to really fear and be concerned about. And as you said, there are multiple points of entry. Um, The addition of Belarus as a military ally now also changes the equation, which wasn't the case in 2014 when Belarus was trying to remain a a fairly neutral um, arbitrator and convener of, of, of peace talks. Um, and so I think the question is, is there a single model for Ukraine um, in play here? Or rather, are we going to see different attempts to break it up in different ways? On the one hand, we could have, we do have this recognition of the East. Could we also have some possible occupations of, say, cities in the South, a city like Odessa, for instance? Um, could there also be an airstrike campaign, um, something much more kinetic, uh, on Kiev itself, and with the justification, because Putin likes to do whataboutism and justify his actions in terms of what the West is, does, with a reference in 1999 NATO bombing of, of Yugoslavia, of Serbia, rather, and uh, Belgrade. I think uh, it might well be a mix of all of these types of moves. And again, I'm not sure um, what exactly the end goal model um, looks like, but I don't think it is a sovereign functioning Ukraine. So in Putin's uh, version of history, and obviously there's always been a two different interpretations of history from the US and NATO's point of view and from Putin's point of view, and of course the Russians make a lot about James Baker's meeting in the Kremlin with Gorbachev in 1990 where he, he floated some ideas, one of which was basically about the division of Germany or the reunification of Germany, saying we wouldn't want, wouldn't move one inch eastward. And that, of course, Gorbachev himself shot that down, and it was immediately shot down by Baker's boss, President Bush Sr. But very little talk about the Budapest Agreement, right? In Was it 1994, where yeah. Ukraine, in agreeing to give up its nuclear weapons got a guarantee of its territorial integrity and a non-aggression pact from all the signers, including Russia. Isn't that the case? Yeah, that's certainly the case. Um, so in that memorandum, Ukraine did indeed um, decide to give up its um, inherited nuclear arsenal in exchange um, for guarantees of its territorial integrity and sovereignty. Um, you could make the case that that agreement was already violated in 2014 um, with the Russian annexation of Crimea um, you know, based in part on troops that were stationed in Sevastopol naval base, which itself was being leased at the time from the government of Ukraine. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there 
are multiple points in post-Cold War history here, uh, multiple violations. I do think it's important to understand that the, um, you know, the question about NATO enlargement and promises, you know, these different waves of NATO enlargement also um, are occurring at different points in time. And, you know, there is uh, a sense that, yes, the Russians um, were uh, not happy about, some were even quite upset at the initial wave of NATO enlargement, but for the most part, um, they accepted it. And U.S.-Russian relations have been in good shape in various points after that, um, post 9-11, for instance. was the first world leader to call up then President Bush and offer support in this intercivilizational struggle. So it's not just a slow spiral. It's been peaks, uh, you know, peaks and valleys. And so I think we need to be cautious about putting everything on this sort of structural condition of NATO expansion. I do think that, you know, in some ways, the dynamic is creating its own security dilemma. And when you look back in 2008, um, when after this NATO Bucharest summit, NATO announced that inevitably Georgia and Ukraine would become members of the alliance. And this precipitated an escalation in Georgia itself. And we have the Russian-Georgia war. Well, at that time, um, Russian support for NATO was actually quite low publicly. Um, this is something that has recently accelerated and accelerated again, sort of post-2014. So I think we just need to be aware that you know, there's a real texture to this post-Cold War history and not get accept these kind of narratives that there's only one single arc, arc of you know, uh, Russian demands being ignored or you know, somehow... Uh, uh, you know, Russia being marginalized. Um, you know, there is a a significant uh, set of uh, you know NATO and Russian agreements um, that's and fora that held for a while. Uh, but again, I think what is so disconcerting about this speech is that it's the kitchen sink. It's everything. It's all the litanies of all the grievances that Russia and President Putin seem to harbor against the West and against the Western-led international order. And that kind of dark, multi-causal, you know, multi-messaging, multi-justification makes it much more difficult to imagine a way out of this now. So if war does break out in the next day or so, and obviously there's supposed to be a meeting on Thursday between Lavrov and Lincoln, which probably won't happen, or nobody quite knows, but it looks like, uh, in fact, Putin himself in this long uh, speech today said that war could break out at any time. So I take it from him that that's a real possibility. What do you think the consequences are going to be here politically? I mean, I cannot believe the Republicans are, are not supporting Biden in any fulsome way. And, of course, you've got people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News parroting uh, Russian propaganda. How do you think it's going to play here in the United States? I mean, when you when you have massive humanitarian suffering in Ukraine itself, you know, you've got the right wing in this country because Biden's a Democrat and, and they've demonized the Democrats and they troll. And that's basically what they do is they troll and fight culture wars. And it seems to be infecting foreign policy because you've got a, a former president who's on, on the phone to Kim Jong-un, has his son-in-law, 
Jared Kushner talk to the Saudi crown prince and suddenly Biden can't get the Saudis to pump more oil to, to lower the price of gas at the pump. So there's a lot of mendacity going on here and it never happened before in U.S. foreign policy, particularly when a war, and this is going to be the most hideous war that Europe has seen since uh, 1945. So I find it a little surreal on the domestic landscape. This will be the first time that an American president is out there on his own. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. I don't expect the partisanship that has now extended into every issue and matters of foreign policy um, to dissipate now because of their conflict. In fact, I would predict gloomily the opposite, that those, especially on the right, um, who have picked up this kind of Trump skeptical of alliances, skeptical of NATO, transatlantic commitments, this is going to be more fodder for them. Say there is a major war going on in Europe now. Why should we have anything to do with this? It is going to be fodder um, for sort of bring the troops home. And so I actually think this is part of Putin's calculation here um, of wanting to erode support both within the alliance itself in your Atlantic community, but he also sees that um, a lot of these Western societies, including the U.S., are very divided themselves. And you mentioned Tucker Carlson. Clips of Tucker Carlson are played on Russian national TV. Uh, so I do think um, that this will be absolutely a political pinata domestically but any you know type of rallying around the flag kind of campaign you know maybe you'll have a few republicans kind of the old guard um um, um you know uh, uh those who sort of favor maintaining commitments you know to allies and, and understand um and value um the nature of the post-cold war order here um maybe they'll keep a lower profile uh but I actually think this is going to intensify debates about America's own role in the world and the desirability of maintaining this system-wide um, of sort of global security partnerships and alliance commitments. Well, Alexander Cooley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Cooley, who's the director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute for the study of Russia, Eurasia, and East Europe, and the Claire Toe Professor of Political Science at Barnard College at Columbia University. His books include Great Games, Local Rules, The New Great Power Contest in Central Asia, Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia, and most recently, Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. And in addition to his academic work, Professor Cooley serves on the range of international advisory boards and working groups engaged in the region and has testified for congressional committees on Eurasian issues. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the leak of 18,000 secret bank accounts held by Credit Suisse belonging to Middle East potentates and dictators containing $100 billion in often looted money, much of which originated as foreign aid paid for by the American taxpayer. Well, 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bartlett Naylor, the Financial Policy Advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division and the Principal of Capital Strategies Consulting, Inc., which works with progressive organizations attempting to reform public policies where corporations play a key role. Formerly, he served as the Chief of Investigations for the United States Senate Banking Committee, where he led probes of the savings and loan crisis, corporate takeovers, and insider trading. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bartlett Naylor. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Bart. And what do you make of this extraordinary leak from Credit Suisse? A whistleblower leaked more than 18,000 bank accounts, which hold up to $100 billion, to the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. And they have an arrangement with 46 other news organizations through a nonprofit group, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. So... The information is now out. It seems that a lots of Middle East potentates are beneficiaries of these secret bank accounts, but there's also Zimbabwean businessmen, a lot of people, in fact, 25 accounts totaling $270 million to the Venezuelan people involved with the Venez- looting the Venezuelan oil company and also other drug dealing going on there in Venezuela even goes back to the Afghan war against the Mujahideen in the 1980s, where a Pakistan intelligence chief who got billions of dollars funneled from the United States to fight the Soviets, he, he took care of his sons. So this is obviously something that's been going on for a long time. Yeah, and indeed, it's uh, unfortunately unsurprising, as you know, that it's been uh, a hallmark of Swiss banking. Uh, Secrecy has been a hallmark of Swiss banking. They had actually passed laws that uh, intentionally attracted money from people that didn't want it to be seen. And uh, this has taken place over decades. Um, The United States has has charged uh, settlements with Credit Suisse for tax evasion and and other problems, Um, but unfortunately it continues. While um, the laws in Switzerland have changed, it's been a history, it's been a tradition of of secrecy, and while that might attract some legitimate people, um, secrecy is something that uh, those bent on misconduct are attracted to. Well, let's just go through the record of how many times Credit Suisse has been sued by the Justice Department. In 2014, they pleaded guilty to conspiring to help Americans file a false tax return, and they paid $2.6 billion in fines. And then three years later, they paid the Justice Department $5.3 billion because of the fraud on, on uh, Wall Street involving these marketing mortgage-backed securities. And then last uh, October, I think it was, they paid $475 million to... U.S. and British authorities, because of a kickback scheme they had with some crooks in Mozambique. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a trial apparently underway now in Switzerland uh, in which Credit Suisse is accused of allowing drug traffickers to launder millions in euros through the bank. So this seemed to be serial offenders. Uh, and did they are. It's part of the Justice Department's um, deferred prosecution agreements, which are the technical term for what you've described. 
that they are under a sort of Damocles that they ever do anything again in the estimation of the Justice Department that they can be charged and the, the previous settlement is null and void. But apparently um, the history of Credit Suisse and unfortunately other major firms, the banks that I pay attention to have, uh, have signed these uh, deferred prosecution agreements, but it has not led to reform. Um, public citizen believes that uh, it's most important to hold individuals to account um, to charge actual uh, people with, with hiding this. And, and, and parenthetically, uh, it's not difficult, it wouldn't be difficult for Credit Suisse to have understood the nature of some of these 18,000 clients that were hiding $100 billion. If you simply go on the internet, you would find that some of them are, are, are notorious. And therefore you have to conclude or you have to entertain the concept that this was part of the business model. This was not an error, this was not an oversight, this was not lax compliance. This was intentional. Well, it's a bit much, though, when you think about these people. I mentioned uh, the head of the Pakistani intelligence service, AISI, during the war against the Soviets, pocketing a bunch of money and opening accounts in Credit Suisse in his son's names. Obviously, that money came from the U.S. taxpayer. All the money that we've given to Egypt following the Camp David Accords, a lot of that money ended up in Mubarak's pockets, and he then set up accounts in the name of his sons through Credit Suisse. And we subsidize the state of Jordan with billions in military and economic aid. Just in 2018 alone, that aid totaled $22 billion. And, of course, one of the people involved in uh, the Swiss bank accounts are King Abdullah, who had six accounts with Credit Suisse, holding more than $224 million, and his wife had an account with over $40 million. So this is what I find pretty odious about it, is a lot of this money that's being hidden in Swiss secret Swiss bank accounts by Credit Suisse, at the end of the day, if you trace it back, it comes from the American taxpayer. Uh, that's, a, that's a good and, and sad point. Um, and, and when the United States is practicing foreign policy by sending millions and billions of dollars around, uh, I wonder if this is inevitable, especially if um, there is this tradition in Switzerland and they're, they're, we're dealing with people, uh, military people whose major skill is intimidation and fear and power that this is this is going to happen. Um, the, the question is, how do you stop that? Should we should we cease doing that? Um, we have a lot of bad choices when practicing foreign policy. Uh, throwing money around seems, uh, you know, uh, less odious than uh, throwing around missiles and putting um, American soldiers in harm's way. But it comes with problems, and I think uh, at least one of the answers has to be much stricter enforcement of U.S. laws and, again, holding individuals to account. So what do you think, then, is the uh, will be the political fallout from this latest leak of 18,000 documents of over $100 billion of dirty money in the hands of a lot of Middle Eastern potentates, along with other dictators that we've mentioned? Is there a, a political dimension to this? Because we are at a, such a divided time in our politics that Republicans don't support anything that 
the Biden government is trying to do. So are they going to get behind this as well? If indeed, I mean, I know there are are calls for um, dealing with this issue. So what's happening on Capitol Hill? Well, the, there is a move to um, uh, improve the disclosure of where a company is domiciled. There are so many offshore companies that otherwise operate and have most of their business in the United States. And there is sentiment to improve that. Um, in the in this particular case of the 18,000, I'm told or I read that there are relatively few Americans involved. So it's possible that some of the judicial response will be outside of the United States. Credit Suisse has four divisions around the world. One of them is in the Middle East. Now, you say that some American money, taxpayer money, is involved in this and gets funneled through that. And that could be one area um, that the Justice Department uh, can look at. And again, the Biden administration does not need Congress to help uh, the Justice Department enforce the law. But with respect to um, uh, with respect to the politics, I don't know that Republicans are going to be sympathetic to this. This is a problem. I I'd like to think that there is some harmony uh, between the parties on trying to to stop these foreign corrupt practices. So where does these efforts to clean up this loophole where you can close a loophole by revealing who the beneficial owner of these shell companies are? And after all, the state of Delaware, that's one of their main industries, producing shell companies. Now South Dakota is getting into the act. And of right. course, you all have these, all these offshore tax havens that do the same thing. So that seems like a relatively simple solution to not just exposing these international crooks, but also Americans who hide their money abroad to, and multinational corporations hide their money abroad to avoid taxes. Billions and billions could be repatriated to the Treasury. And all these Republicans are talking about deficits and deficits and deficits. Well, let's recoup some of this money. Um, yes. Um, one of the challenges is that obviously this money knows how to buy Delaware, how to buy South Dakota. They have a reason to. They shroud it in obscurity. South Dakota lawmakers don't even understand what they're doing when they're um, approving these various amendments to trusts over the years. Uh, and it is it does bring in some money. I'm told that it's actually not as lucrative um, as you might uh, imagine. And the fact that corporation law is more state-based than federal is another is another challenge. If you know there's a race to the bottom, if Delaware ever were to crack down, then companies would just flee to another state uh, that's anxious to have them. So it is a difficult uh, problem. One of the answers, an excellent solution, is to federalize the incorporation of a, of American firms. That no, there has to be a federal charter, not not a state charter. The state charter was conceived in a day hundreds of years ago when companies were local, that uh, you know they didn't really cross uh, state borders, but uh, any company of any size, certainly one that goes public, is likely to be operating in many states, if not all states. So in terms of the specific bills about exposing the beneficial owner, where does that stand? Um, yes, uh, in the in reconciliation, there was an important uh, an, an important uh, first step, but I think um, uh, much more needs to be done, including uh, where companies are paying their taxes. 
because uh, you know you're you're domiciled you know apple i forgot which company is is domiciled in um in ireland where they have very little business but their patents are all registered there so much more a disclosure on that um, i don't as as you anybody witnessing congress right now nothing of importance is going to happen um arguably for another two and a half years, if, especially if Congress does not, uh, if, if it turns even redder than it, it is now. So I don't see major reform motion happening for some time. Well, Bartlett Naylor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an important story. And again, I've been speaking with Bartlett Naylor, who's the Financial Policy Advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division and the principal of Capital Strategies Consulting, Inc., which works with progressive organizations attempting to reform public policies where corporations play a key role. Formerly, he served as the Chief of Investigations for the United States Senate Banking Committee, where he led probes of the savings and loan crisis, corporate takeovers, and insider trading. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining ways in which the Democrats can avoid an electoral wipeout in the midterms. Oh, like the castle in his corner in a medieval game I foresee terrible trouble and I stay here just the same I'm a fool to do your dirty work Oh yeah Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democratic Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And he has an article at the New Democratic Network, Mr. Biden, Your Good Economy Won't Sell Itself. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Rosenberg. It's always good to be here, Ian. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, thanks for joining us. And I spoke the other day with the Clinton pollster, Stan Greenberg, who had a piece in the American Prospect warning that there was a kind of contradiction that the White House and Biden wants to take credit for the good economy, which he's certainly not getting enough credit for. But in doing so, he's going to alienate the white working class voters along with Latinos and African-Americans who are not experiencing a great economy. And I guess the question here is, are they mutually exclusive? Is there a way to navigate around those two if they are, in fact, opposite poles? So, you know, I have a slightly different take on all this from Stan and the work that I've done is based on publicly available polling and talking to many of the folks running in the elections, the cycle. And I think that, um, you know, we're an incumbent party. And if people don't feel that things are better, you know, by the summer, we're going to have a tough midterm. The, the political project for the Democrats now is to, uh, is to sell the idea, right, that things are better. Things are actually better, right? We are getting to the other side of COVID. The economy uh, most Americans are better off in the Biden economy than they were a year and a half ago. And I think that the we've got to make it clear that we're not focused, that we're focused squarely on the struggle that they've had to get through COVID, right, to identify with that struggle. That struggle outweighs any of the economic struggles that Stan may have been referring to. 
um, and that and that um, and that our plans have worked. If we can't, it's a very simple thing, right? If people don't think that things are better by July, we're going to have a very rough midterm. If people think that things are better, we're going to have a competitive midterm. And so, you know, I think we I think this is a doable thing. I don't think this is outside of our power. And where I think Stan may be wrong is that I, I think the economic data, as John Harwood has written and as Paul Krugman wrote the other day in The New York Times, you know, the bottom 50 percent of workers, even with inflation, came out ahead in 2021. A majority of Americans are much better off. If you owned a home or an apartment or an, owned any stock, you're way, way ahead of inflation. And so there just aren't that many Americans who are actually actually fell behind in 2021 in terms of economic data, right? And where a lot of the discomfort and the, and the, and the frustration exists, I think it's far more attributable to COVID than it is to the economy, which just went through one of the biggest boom years that we've seen in the entire post-World War II era. If we can't take credit for this economy, there's no economy we're ever going to be able to take credit for. So are you saying then that things are better, but people don't feel better? Yes, in part because of COVID, right? I mean, you know, when Joe Biden was, when COVID was being defeated in May of 2021, Biden's numbers were high. When Delta came, uh, but, you know, and things started, you know, with the return of COVID, Biden's numbers came down. And I think that there has been, there is a lot of data. If you look at some of the analysis we've done, you look at Democratic voters, the Democratic electorate, the no overwhelming issue for Democrats right now is COVID, right? Everything. And it makes sense, right? We're going, we're just in, the, we're still in the midst of what may be the single biggest disruption to American lives in all of our history. I don't know that lives were disrupted more during the Depression or during World War II um, or even during the Civil War, right? I, I don't know that, you know, it's very possible that what we're living through is the single greatest disruption to our daily lives that, that America's ever experienced. Of course, that would be a paramount concern to everybody. And I think that what we, I think that what I am confident of and what I can say as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, you know, is has Joe Biden made things better? On COVID, absolutely, right? We vaccinated most of the country. Yes, there was more opposition to us than we'd anticipated, right? But I mean, the country is far better off. We're getting through Omicron and Delta. Was it harder? Was there more adversity than we anticipated? Absolutely. But COVID's been a formidable uh, adversary for everyone in the world, not just Joe Biden and the Democrats, right? And the second thing is on the economy, as we talked about earlier, um, you know, people are actually better off. And uh, than they were, and and I think that some of that understanding has been clouded by what's happened with COVID. And if I'm right, as as uh, about this, then when COVID starts to recede, and if the economy continues to improve, Joe Biden's number should come back up. But 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 we've got to make that connection. Joe Biden never did the victory lap on his on the American Rescue Plan in the in March and April of last year. He moved immediately to selling the BBB, which never passed. And so most of the public communications about his agenda last year was tied to something that didn't happen as opposed to the stuff that did happen. And I think that's something that we can change in the coming months. Well, when you talk about the BBB, the Build Back Better, we spoke about it earlier. Obviously, you were frustrated that, you know, they wasted months trying negotiating with Mansion and Cinema, and at the end, they got stiffed. And... I think voters, in part, apart from the rejection of Trump, they thought in, that in voting for Biden, you had a, a guy that had a long career in the in the yep. Senate and knew how to reach across the aisle. Yep. But 
the truth of the matter is that all the norms have been shattered now by Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump's Republican Party. It's not the party that Joe Biden used to hang out with his Republican colleagues in. It's a whole different creature now, isn't it? So you're quoted in an article by Greg Sargent in the Washington Post, a brutal new polling on Biden should scare Democrats, but there's a way out. Somebody also has mentioned in there's another Democratic strategist who said that it's not mission accomplished, but it's mission underway. That doesn't sound yeah. like a, a winning strategy to me. No, what, I, I, Ian, what I think, would be a I, winning strategy. So I, I think it's I think we just have to be honest, right, is to say that, look, things are better, but we're not where we want to be. I, I don't I don't think that's that complicated. And I think that one of the things that went wrong with BBB and, I, and, and you and I discussed this a little bit earlier is that we have to distinguish between what we're saying and what we're doing. I mean, and I think that what I mean by that is what I want, what I think the Democrats have to do this year is we have to defeat COVID, keep the economy growing, defend democracy and, and tackle climate change. I think those are the four big things we have to do. How we talk about what we're doing, in my view, as the incumbent party has to be far more about explaining to people about the things that we've already done and connecting our actions to their improved lives, to the just getting through COVID, to the economy booming in 2021, right? Then, to, then spending as much time talking about things that haven't happened yet. And with the advice I've given the White House is that I think Joe Biden should be spending two thirds of his time, uh, public communications time, talking, you know, celebrating the people that helped us get to the other side of COVID, making the American people themselves, their struggle, their resilience, their grit through this incredible pandemic, the hero of the story, right? I, if we, if there are going to be people in the State of the Union next week, and I don't know if there are going to be people in the room, you know, he needs to showcase people that have been the teachers and the principals and the healthcare workers who've gotten us through the other side, you know, that have been created the ability for us to have, you know, to, it's not going back to normal because there won't be normal, but it's to get to this other side of COVID so that our lives feel something like normal, right? And so I, I think that we can do both, right? We can stay focused on an, on an agenda, but it's about how we communicate what's important to voters. To our voters, what's important is getting through COVID and keeping the economy going. That's where Joe Biden should be spending his time. And again, I'm speaking with Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democratic Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And he has an article at the New Democratic Network, Mr. Biden, your good economy won't sell it itself. So you mentioned teachers, and of course, there's a lot of, uh, of focus now on the recall election in San Francisco of three school yeah. board members. Now, I think it's largely, first of all, there was serious intervention by hard right Republican operatives who one of their, their anti-democratic schemes, along with massive voter suppression, is the recall vote, which is in itself an incredibly undemocratic yeah. tool. But Republicans are happy to use it. And they did it, of course, against Governor Newsom and the mayor of San Francisco, both basically have dismissed all of the interpretations coming out of that uh, recall that wokeness is, was on trial. And they both basically said, no, it was just these school board members, you know, took their eye off the ball and, and renaming 44 schools and somehow 
getting rid of the names of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington are not priorities for parents. So what can Democrats learn from that and from Youngkin wrapping himself in parental control of schools? Oh, you know, this is, we could probably do a whole other segment on this, <laughs> but I'll just right, say. But, but remember, quick, Steve, yeah. Simon, the yeah. Democrats have always owned education and yeah. the idea that the Republicans could take that away in any I, form uh, it, with massive fraud is very disturbing. So I want to go back to something you're deeply uh, immer immersed in, which is, I think we have to recognize, I'm going to hit this in two ways, right? First of all, before we go, I want to say that I think that Joe Biden's uh, very strong management of the Russia-Ukraine crisis so far is creating a real opening for him to talk about something I know that you care about a great deal, which is defending our democracy and here and all around the world and being a strong advocate for the democratic system, right, in, in this ongoing struggle we have with autocracies all uh, around the world. And I think that I just want to, before we go, uh, suggest that, you know, as we look to the State of the Union next week, um, you know, Joe Biden is being given an opportunity to really make very clear where he stands on these important issues, what he's doing in Ukraine. I mean, obviously, Putin seems to be taking aggressive action, uh, increasing the pressure on Ukraine as we speak. And I think it's going to be very important now that Joe Biden sees this opportunity to create a more um, uh, more powerful conversation with the American people about the threats to our democracy here in the United States and democracies all around the world. I think that's going to be important. In terms of the school issue, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think that what happened in Virginia, I think, was very specific to Virginia. Virginia. School issues are also very much a state and local issue. I don't think it's going to be a major issue in the upcoming federal elections. But I think that if Democrats can't find the seam here, between a party that's burning books and has gone overboard in their in their calibration on this stuff and, and our historic strong advocacy for public education, then then we don't deserve to get reelected in 2022. I mean, this to me is actually a pretty easy issue because like everything else, the Republican position that they've staked out is loaded with extremism. Um, and it's something that we have to make a major decision about how much time and energy we're gonna spend I think Virginia was a was state race. What happened in California was state, was local. I don't think these issues are going to have the same kind of impact uh, in, the, in, the, in the federal races because it's not really a federal issue. The Republicans may try to make it one, you know, they may try to push this into the federal conversation, the national conversation. I just don't think it's going to have the same kind of salience as it would uh, in, a, in a local and state race. But we'll see. But I, th I think we can, I think this is something that Democrats can prevail, but we have to lean into it and not run away from it and define where we are in this and be aggressive and not let them define the terms of the debate, which is what I think in part happened in Virginia. Well, the consequence of a war in Ukraine probably will be an even greater spike in inflation because oil prices are up around $100 a barrel. Recently, President Biden had a phone conversation with King Salman of Saudi Arabia, who's apparently may have Alzheimer's, but he, the real power that we know there is the son, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, who Biden doesn't want to talk with. It's clear to me, at least, and other analysts, that the fact that Jared Kushner visited Saudi Arabia a few days before Biden made his plea to the Saudi king to pump more oil to lower the price, that he, it fell on deaf ears because of M MBS is waiting for Trump to come back. And this is happening to our foreign policy. Trump apparently is having 
private conversations with Kim Jong-un. Some members of the German elite want to hedge their bets over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, which may be a casualty of, the, uh, of a war if it breaks out, because they think that Trump could come back. So this is the part of it that I don't understand. I don't know how you can weaponize the fact that this very sick man who can't accept defeat because he can't be a loser, it's essentially a psychological problem, that this sick man's psyche has been inflicted upon the nation in a most detrimental way. He is the gift that keeps on giving for Putin because he continues to divide and weaken our country, yet he controls the Republican Party, and there is a kind of collective madness in the country where a huge number of members of the Republican Party are bought into a complete fiction, a lie, that had been manufactured by this guy because he can't face being a loser. And he's going to take the whole country down and he'll take our foreign policy down and nobody in the world can deal with a country though every four years everything is reversed. So what we face on the international stage, even if Biden is able to manage this crisis, again it will increase inflation and again it will make the domestic landscape more difficult for Biden. So... I don't know how you deal with the broader issue of an intervention. It's almost as if the American family has to have an intervention because there's a very sick person who's destroying America. He's always talked about America first, but it's always been Trump first, and he's going to take us all down. So, Ian, I'll say two things. I, I think that building on what I said earlier, that this is not what's happening with Russia and Ukraine is an opportunity for Joe Biden to have a very important and long overdue conversation with the American people about the threats that we face and the realities of the modern world, including you know, what's happening here in the United States. And I do think consistent with what you said, one of the areas that he should really lean into is to, you know, we should you know, push very hard to pass the climate provisions in BBB to show the Russians and the Saudis that you know when we get threatened we are going to use tools to more you know to accelerate the path to decarbonization i think there's no question that the commitment that we would make through the bbb climate provisions would send a very powerful signal to the governments and the markets of the world that we are moving at a much more rapid pace to decarbonization it will put them under even greater strain than they are already this should have been a primary way of, of Joe Biden responding to Putin's aggression. And it's still something I think that is open to us. Manchin's indicated significant interest in passing at least big chunks of it. It should happen, in my view, without delay. I think the second thing is on your concern, and I, and I think it's why I think we have to have this conversation. Joe Biden has struggled to talk about these issues to, to the American people. It's not He hasn't found his voice yet on this. He's had moments, episodic moments. I think that they are worried about sounding too partisan, but I think it's why what we're seeing, you know, that, I mean, the reason that Vladimir Putin is attacking uh, Ukraine is because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump appeased Putin, create, helped elevate him on the global stage, gave him permission to even be more aggressive than he ever would have been otherwise. And I think that we have to recognize that the, the Republicans' appeasement of Trump is probably the most, the darkest set of actions in all, of, I mean, the appeasement of Putin by Trump and the Republicans could be the darkest chapter in our entire history in the United States. And I think that, you know, my view is that one of the ways that this is going to be dealt with is that 
I think Trump's business empire is on the verge of collapse. If you look at what's happening with the, you know, he lost his accountants. Very soon, lawyers will stop working for him if he's not paying the bills. Uh, he's going to have, he's going, he won't be able to refinance through conventional ways. You know, yes, the Saudis and the Russians may pump more money into him, but that money will be difficult to use uh, legally in the United States for him to pay his bills. And so you could start to see a very significant and rapid uh, collapse of Trump's capacity to keep his machine going. Not, I've run an organization for 25 years. I can't even imagine what it would be like to not have an accounting firm put producing my financial statements. We also know that he, you know, he falsified or created fraudulent reporting to the IRS and to uh, in his federal financial disclosure. So he's broken federal laws, series of repeatedly broken federal laws, which are, there's no question now, in my view, that the federal government is going to open up some kind of significant inquiry into him that will result in him being prosecuted. Now, you could argue that, well, he'll play the victim and, you know, and the bad Democrats are coming after me. But I think there's something different will happen here. I don't think he's going to be able to continue to operate legally inside the American system much longer. And and I think that this is going to, I think the idea, I think for the the slice of the Republican Party that has any kind of integrity, that understands the gravity of these things, there's going to be a big difference when his family gets indicted. Um, and so I, you know, and he gets indicted. I'm confident now in a way that I wasn't a month ago, that the wheels of justice are turning in a way that could be very consequential for him and his family. But we'll see. I mean, it, it, it is, it's still, he's been able, like Houdini, to have gotten out of this stuff every time. But it really could be that the time is, time is running out for him here in the U.S. Well, Simon Rosenberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And he has an article at the New Democratic Network, Mr. Biden, Your Good Economy Won't Sell Itself. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine